The scripture reading today is from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Molly Kenny is an attorney in Bellevue, Washington. She practices family law and she writes online that there are five secrets that can sink a marriage. She speaks about, first of all, not surprisingly, the secret of infidelity. She says many affairs start with just very small secrets. Then she goes on to something related, the secret of social media relationships, which are on the rise, inappropriate activity on social media. Then she mentions secrets about addictions, hiding an addiction to alcohol or gambling or porn. Then she mentions the secret of stealth spending. This is when you hide your spending from your spouse. She says one in 10 divorces involve hiding credit card spending from a spouse. And then secret number five, hiding the fact that you aren't happy, being secret about your internal life, your unhappiness, keeping your true feelings, whether it's about your career or your relationship or your family quiet. And while this silence may seem to be the best thing to do to begin with, sometimes that silence can be the beginning of a rift and powerful, a divide between two people, so that the silence begins to dominate and the relationship begins to be torn apart, nothing left in common. I would add to what Ms. Kenny says a caveat, and that is this, that I think that the content of the secrets is not nearly so divisive as the having of secrets by themselves. Now, to be sure, some of you may be in professions where you cannot share with your spouse things that are going on. But you tell them that, and they should know that, and if they don't know that, well, that's a problem in and of itself. But by and large, secrets in any relationship are divisive and they are destructive. Whereas Jesus said, happy, are the pure in heart, 
those who hold no secrets before God, whose lives are an open book so God sees straight in and we do not hide. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see and know as never before the living God. Let's bow before this God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Lord Jesus said that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from your mouth. We thank you that you have spoken to us in Holy Scripture, and you have spoken to us through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you speak to us in times of worship, especially where two or three are gathered in your name. And sometimes when we are alone, setting ourselves apart before you in silence, but always when we are an open book before you, you long to enter and fill us with your life and your power and your joy. So meet with us now to this end. It is through Jesus we pray our prayer. Amen. In our sermons this fall, as many of you know, we're looking together at the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ as we find it in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're not actually going through those chapters sequentially, but I'm referring to them along the way, and I'll do so again today, because we're really focusing on the opening preface to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, and in some ways the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an expansion of what Jesus says at the very beginning. That very beginning, that preface, we call the Beatitudes, statements about blessedness, or I've been saying about happiness, which are really counterintuitive to how people think about happiness today. But Jesus is passionately concerned, as in particular were the Psalms written a long time before Jesus, on which Jesus relies a great deal for his teaching and his ministry. Jesus is passionate about our happiness, even though he tells us that we're in all likelihood not going to find it in the normal traditional ways, but in ways which, well, they're just slightly off the beaten track. So Jesus says, for example, happy are the poor in spirit. How strange is that? Poor in spirit? It's not exactly how I would think of happiness or the source of happiness, but poor enough in spirit to know that we need someone who is greater and wiser than we are, on whom our lives must rely and depend, God. And we will not trust in God fully until we are poor enough in spirit to ask God into our lives to take that role. Happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. It almost seems that that's a contradiction in terms. Mourning, crying, weeping, not happy. But here's the first step towards happiness, isn't it? To grieve. If we don't grieve, we will never move on from loss. We will never move on from the injustices in the world. We will never move on from our own sin and our own weakness unless we grieve those things and hand our sorrow over to God. And God releases us and says, now, move into the future that I have for you. And then happy are the meek and happy are those who hunger and thirst. We looked at last week, not for success or for money or for pleasure. God may lead us into all of these things, but hunger and thirst, for thirst first for righteousness, right, right relatedness to God. That's what righteousness is. A relationship with God that is right. And a relationship with others that is right and just and fair. 
For they are the ones, says Jesus, who will be filled. They are the ones who will be satisfied. And then we come to today's beatitude, statement of happiness, where Jesus says, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I suppose right from the outset, we might understand Jesus to be saying something like this when he speaks about a pure heart, that if our lives are morally pure, that if our lives are religiously perfect, if all contamination from sin is removed from our lives, like cleaning up a hazardous waste dump, then our lives will become pleasing to God. And God will give us a, a, a fresh sense of God's uh, presence with us, a fresh experience of God. We will see God in ways we've never seen God before. And this will provide to us a, a deep and abiding happiness. Happy are the pure in heart. This is where happiness lies, for they will see God. Now there's no doubt to me that at least partially Jesus has this kind of understanding in mind when he speaks in the Beatitude in this way, that we need to live our lives to be as morally and as religiously, as spiritually pure as our lives can be. This needs to be a passion for us to pursue. The scriptures repeatedly tell us that when this is not our passion, then our view of God becomes obscured. We do not see God as we ought to see God when we do not seek God with all our hearts. Indeed, sin gets in the way we confuse our will with the will of God. And Isaiah the prophet says that that creates a gulf between us and God. So it's harder and harder to see God the more we pursue our own path in life. And sometimes we even blame God for things which, well, it's just not God's fault at all. The fault is on the human level, not the divine level, and based upon all kinds of decisions that we make that we forget about along the way. Says the psalmist in Psalm 24, only those with clean hands and a pure heart can approach the presence of God. And the prophet Habakkuk says, God is so pure that he cannot behold evil. And so he calls us to repentance. He calls us to remove from our lives those things that we see in our lives that are contrary to the will and the purpose of God. Whatever evil has gripped us, let it go. Pursue purity within your life for the sake of God. And that, at least in part, I think, is what Jesus has in mind here, that we clean up our acts, that we remove the sin from our lives whenever we see it, that we repent. That's the biblical word, that we repent and move in God's direction, seeking God's power to become more pure spiritually, more pure morally, more pure in all kinds of different ways, so that we can see God more clearly within our lives. And this is not just for some of us, by the way. This is for all of us. It's not just for those whose lives are clearly off the track, but it's for all of us. The Scripture tells us that sin is pernicious, that we certainly don't always see our own failings and our weaknesses and the things that need to be changed to make us pure in life have to do not only with getting rid of the things that we do that we ought not to do, but the beginning of the things that we ought to do that we haven't yet begun to do. So this is about all of us being on this track of growth all the way through life to the very end. Only Jesus is there, and we are on the path. And that needs to be the path that we are on if we're going to see God more and more clearly. This surely is part of what Jesus has in mind 
when he says, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But at the same time, I'm convinced that there's another message as well within these words, within this beatitude, that Jesus wants us to receive. Something just as important, if not more so. Something that the great Reformation theologian John Calvin saw in Jesus' words when he wrote a commentary on what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when he reached the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. This was an understanding which he delved into 400 years ago, so it's nothing new, but an alternative way of thinking about this Beatitude. What Calvin said was this, that this statement about happiness and purity is not just an admonition to moral and religious growth, uh, a moving in the direction of purity of life in that sense, but it's an admonition as well to pursue a life that is an open book, that is transparent, that is crystal clear, as pure as glass to God. Open all the way for God to come into our lives to the very depth of our being with no secrets, with no roadblocks along the way, with no twists and turns internally, but allowing God to see straight through us. And of course, there are ramifications too for our relationships with others that they be tra transparent in the same kind of way as well. John Calvin approaches this particular uh, beatitude in this way because of the uh, words that he finds in the original Greek in Matthew's gospel, which we normally translate as, well, happy are the pure in heart. The fact is that there is no preposition there. There's no word in in the original Greek. It's not an illegitimate translation to put it in. It can do that in all kinds of different ways. But if you were to look at the original Greek of Jesus' beatitude, it actually says, happy are the pure to the heart. Happy are the pure to the heart. And do you see the distinction that is there? Happy are the pure all the way to the innermost part of our being. And that's how Calvin saw it. And that's how I want us to think about it. In addition to being pure in the heart, morally and spiritually growing all the time. Pure to the heart, to the very depth of our being. Transparent to the core. And this, says Jesus, is where we're going to find our happiness, when we let God into every nook and cranny of our lives. This is where we're going to find our happiness. And this concern of Jesus for us to be transparent to the core, to bring all of our lives before God, is very clear in other parts of Jesus' teaching, and in particular in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount. We see this when Jesus teaches, for example, on the subject of adultery. He does this in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. But he says there, it's not just the outward act of adultery that God is concerned about, though God is concerned about that. God is concerned about the seed that begins these things. God is concerned about our innermost desires and thoughts and lusts as well. Our laws, the laws of our land, don't go there. And maybe we agree with that, that that's not the role of the law of the land. But it is the role of the law of God, who sees into the very depth of our being, who made us and who knows our inward parts, and is concerned with everything that's going on in our life to the core of our being. And the same is true with the issue of murder. It's not just the literal act of murder that God is concerned about, but the wielding of anger against others by which we wish that they were 
Oh, we wish that they were dead, that they were out of our way in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus says that's what God is interested in as well, all the way to the depth of your being, all the way to your heart. And when Jesus speaks about prayer, when he speaks about giving and generosity in the Sermon on the Mount, he is concerned not just with the outward acts, but he's concerned with who are you doing this for? Who are you trying to impress? Are you doing it for others so that they see what you're doing and think more of you? Or are you doing it for God, who gave you your life and everything that you have? For God, who amazingly wants to hear our conversations one-on-one -on -one with God, as if God were, well, God is actually really there. So Jesus elsewhere is concerned with his purity all the way to the heart and to the very core of our being. And he says that when we see things that way, when we give up our pretending, our interests merely in the facade, when we dig deep into our lives, then, then that's when we will find a happiness that we didn't have before. And that's when we will have a new vision of God that we have not had before. If God is obscure and distant, maybe it's because there's a secret door that is locked in our lives. And we say to God, no further. No, no, no. You are not going in there. When we come to the story that we read as our scripture reading, the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus, which we find in the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel, I think we're really reading the story about somebody who gave up all the presences, all the facade, and didn't care anymore what people thought about him, but began to be only concerned about where his life was with God. So back to that story that I shared with the children that we heard in our scripture reading. Jesus comes to the city of Jericho down in the Jordan Valley beside the Dead Sea. And Zacchaeus lives there, and Zacchaeus is this tax collector who works for the Romans, the occupation forces, the enemy. And they say to him, here's what we want you to collect for us. We don't care how you get it, how much more you take for yourself, just deliver us this amount of money. And he does that, and he becomes very rich because he skims the top. He rips off his own people in order to get the funds. He has it all. He has it all, but of course, he doesn't really have it all. On the outside, he would appear to be happy, but he's not. No friends, no relationships, and it would seem a conscience that was increasingly bothering him, an emptiness in his soul that was increasingly bothering him, and nothing, it seems, would fill that emptiness until, well, he hears that Jesus is coming to town, a secret discontent a secret unhappiness. Remember those secrets which can break up marriages if we don't reveal them. But in his case, it's bursting to get out. He's not going to show his weakness to others to begin with. But when Jesus is coming to town, he drops all of that. He really doesn't seem to care what other people think of him at all. The outside facade and pretense, no, it's time to ditch that and do whatever it takes to catch a new vision of God, which may perhaps just change my life. And in desperation, Zacchaeus is willing to do anything, even make a public fool of himself, in order for his life to change. That's how desperate he is. Sometimes we miss 
this aspect of making a fool of himself because we teach this story and it's a wonderful story to teach to our children. And we see it just as a children's story. But we need to lift it above that and remember that Zacchaeus is an adult. And in the Middle East, even to this day, adults don't run places beneath your dignity. And he ran. Desperate he was to see Jesus. And then he climbed a tree. He climbed a tree. And that would have exactly the same effect on us today, uh, uh, to, to them uh, back then, as it would have on us today. So think, for example, of, let's say, a motorcade is going by on Nebraska Avenue, and maybe the president is there, and maybe uh, there's a crowd out there, and they're waving, and the senior pastor of the National Presbyterian Church hears about this motorcade and runs across the campus to see what's going on there and decides, well, I can't see because there's a great crowd there, so I climb a tree in order to do that. And there's a photo in the Washington Post of the senior pastor of the National Presbyterian Church up in a tree looking down. What is he? Well, he's looking at the president up there. And I would say that there's some people here at National who would say, what in the world is he doing now? There would be an exposing of my inner self at that moment, which would seem to be quite inappropriate to the office that I hold. But maybe it would be vital. Maybe it would be necessary. Maybe I just wouldn't care what people would say. Embarrassing as it was, whatever the consequences would be. And that, I think, is actually what's going on with Zacchaeus. Consequences, enormous consequences, being made a fool of again and again after the event. Yeah, quite possibly. But he doesn't care anymore. The secret needs to be exposed. The inside needs to come out. The facade is no longer at the core of his being. And when that happens, not only does Jesus see him, but see, he sees God in Jesus in a way he has never seen before. Exposed, open to ridicule, but in Jesus' eyes, loved with a love that will not let him go. Some years ago now, Stephen Covey wrote a book, best-selling book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He begins the book in the introduction by speaking about the temptation to focus on shallowness and the facade in life. He says that as he examined business literature from the foundation of our nation, so going back to the 1700s, wherever he could find anything written on the subject, to the time he wrote the book about 25 years ago, he says that he found a dramatic change in the nature of that literature following World War II. He says after World War II, he says things began to focus on image, on appearance, on skills, and on techniques and strategies. You gotta do this, gotta do that, and if you do this or that, you'll be successful. I'm sure there's some truth in that. But he says before World War II, he says the emphasis was different. Success was connected with being with being who you were. The virtues that nobody sees, but God sees, underlying everything. Purity in heart, related to humility and fidelity and temperance and courage and patience and modesty and integrity. Purity in heart, but also purity to the heart. A sense of transparency. Goes on to say that success is ultimately linked to trust. And you cannot trust a person 
who to a certain extent at least you cannot see through, if this person is not the same here and here and here, there will be no trust. What is on the outside must be linked to the inside, or the relationship on which the success is built will never, ever be formed. Transparency, what you see is what you get. The handshake means something. The word means something. Those are the people you want to do business with. And that's where happiness lies. And a whole new vision of what is possible and potential also lies in that area. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous. need to mention them again. Ultimately, happiness is their business. Alcoholics Anonymous is not interested merely in the theory of alcoholism, in analyzing what it is to be an alcoholic or what causes addiction. I'm sure they are interested in those things. But not primarily. Primarily, they are interested in lives which actually change. Something actually happening in lives that release people from a bondage and a slavery and that cause misery to a new life in which there may always be a fight till the day the person dies, but nevertheless, set at liberty in a remarkable way, lives, as they would say, that have become unmanageable. And they know that this will not happen. It just will not happen, this transformation, unless there is a profound honesty. So in any meeting you would attend, if you wanted to speak, you would introduce yourself with your name, My name, I'm David, and who am I? I'm an alcoholic. This is the truth. This is what's going on on the inside, and I don't really care who knows it. Well, actually, I do want to be in a safe place. I'm not going to spill the beans inappropriately, but I'm going to find that safe space when that truth can come out with others, but absolutely, ultimately, with God. That is the truth, and I will speak that truth. Purity to the heart all the way to the core, which is powerful in transforming us to be pure in heart in all kinds of ways that we want to be. That's the power that Zacchaeus opened himself up to on that day when Jesus came to Jericho, tired of pretending, miserable in his soul, hiding what was going on inside him, and deciding that now is the time to drop that and for his life to become, as it were, crystal clear. You want to read my life? Go ahead and read it. And in particular, that day he allowed Jesus to read his life as an open book all the way to the core. It was a risk. I mean, who knows what was going to happen? It was a risk. But he took that risk. And that led to a whole new chapter in his life where there was a happiness that never existed before and a vision of God, a relationship with God which had never existed before and that he couldn't have conceived of. But it began at that moment when he dropped everything and climbed the tree and saw Jesus and Jesus saw him. Let's bow before God in prayer. Holy God, we don't know why we hide from you, think that we can hide from you. We don't know why sometimes we hide even from those who love us most. 
but help us to find those friends, that fellowship within which we can bear our souls safely and know we are loved, and help us to know this in powerful ways with you, who longs for our true happiness and for us to catch a vision of you which is new every day until eternity. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.